0: I'm really glad to introduce to you our guest speaker. Why don't you come on up, brother? His name is Jim Donahue. He's a pastor of evangelism uh, at Covenant Fellowship Church, which is one of our Sovereign Grace sister churches in Glen Mills. Jim also leads evangelism for not just our region, really, but for all of Sovereign Grace, where he uh, helps to promote vision, uh, encourage Uh, churches in evangelism and also provides training. Uh, He's been a significant help to me personally. He's been a good friend. And although he lives in Pennsylvania, he is a good old South Jersey boy. So we're really glad to have you here this morning. Good to have you here, brother. Thank you. So turn to Matthew chapter 9, if you wouldn't mind. Matthew chapter 9. And I want to start by by reading an article. In the winter of 1925, a small Alaskan town called Nome, which is situated on the edge of the Arctic Circle, found itself on the brink of an unimaginable crisis. An outbreak of diphtheria threatened to wipe out the entire community of 1,400 people. Gnomes' lone physician Curtis Welch feared that if this infection spread it could destroy the surrounding communities as well totaling 10,000 people. The outbreak began in December of 1924 when Welch saw what he thought were cases of tonsillitis, but when the number of cases grew and children began to drop dead, he feared the worst. Diphtheria is a highly contagious bacterial disease that attacks the respiratory system. Well, fortunately, a a cure was available, an antitoxin. The problem was that the antitoxin was almost 700 miles away. And there was no way for a boat to get to them because they were completely iced in. And a plane could not get there because there were only open-air planes. The only way to get there was by dog sled. The U.S. Post Office recruited their best dog sled teams, a total of 20, and positioned them along the route. The entire route ordinarily took the Postal Service 25 days to cover, but Dr. Welch could not wait that long because the serum only lasted six days and people were dying. The dogs would have to complete the journey in less than a quarter of the normal time. The journey began on the night of January 27th. The first musher left with his team of 11 dogs, and the temperature dropped to negative 50 degrees. He developed hypothermia, and by the time he had completed his 52-mile leg, three of his dogs were dead. The serum then made its way from musher to musher. Some dogs collapsed from frostbite, and one musher had to hook up the harness to himself, and help pull the sled. One musher got hit with an an 80-mile-an-hour gust as a storm came in. It flipped his sled. He lost the serum and had to take off his gloves to dig it out of the snow and find it, and he got frostbite on his hands. The storm that was ripping across Alaska brought wind chills of negative 85 degrees. One of the mushers made a dangerous drive across the Norton Sound with the lead dog, his lead dog, Togo, navigating the way in the blinding storm. And then Balto led the last dog sled team into Nome with the precious serum. Altogether, it took them only five and a half days, and the entire town was safe. The men who led these dog sled teams, they saw the desperate need, the helplessness of the people who were dying. They they had compassion. And that compassion moved them. And they saved that town. And, And what a joy they must have felt to be a part of that rescue mission. And we see that same thing in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is also on a rescue mission. Look at chapter 9 and verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus, it says, he's going throughout all the cities and villages. He is going from town to town and and hitting all the cities and villages. And he's doing two things as he comes into these towns. He is proclaiming the gospel and he is healing the sick. I love this about Jesus, this picture of Jesus. Imagine him coming into these towns. All of the sick people are coming and being healed. Imagine the joy that is going up as he heals them. It's such a a picture of the heart of God to bring blessing and joy and wholeness. And he's declaring the good news of the gospel. This is what he does everywhere he goes. And it's also what the early church does in Acts. They are preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Jesus is on a mission. Well, why? Why is he on this mission? Well, we see in verse 36, it's because people are harassed and helpless. They're harassed and helpless. No, sheep are extremely temperamental and and vulnerable creatures. Without a shepherd, sheep are an utter mess. There's a pecking order. They begin to fight and knock each other off of tufts of grass and don't let each other sleep. They get anxious and worried. They are so easily picked off by Predators. They, they starve. They can't find food. They dehydrate because they can't even find water. They make terrible decisions. They are probably, sheep are probably the clearest example of helpless creatures. Now, human babies are the most helpless creatures at birth, but they eventually are able to take care of themselves, at least in theory. But sheep remain helpless for the duration of their lives. When Jesus sees these sheep, when he sees all the crowds in all the cities, his response is compassion. Now, now the Greek word used here, which I can't pronounce, is much stronger than compassion. It means it was gut-wrenching. His heart went out to them. And I just love this about Jesus. He has great compassion. They have no shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They are getting harassed and beat up. They're leading each other astray. They're they're actually being led to the slaughter. And Jesus is moved by this. It, It brings out great compassion in him. During World War II, a man named Oscar Schindler who was a member of the Nazi party, ran a factory in Poland. And he hired many Jews to run that factory. He became very wealthy. As the war went on, Oskar Schindler began to notice the way the Nazis treated the Jews. And it kept getting worse and worse. There's one scene in the movie Schindler's List where, where they are—I hate this word—liquidating um, the Krakow out, out, ghetto. It's they're 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 taking people out, killing them, and taking them to the concentration camps. And Schindler is on his horse up on a hill, and he's watching, and he sees this little girl in a red coat, and she's walking through the street as. People were ripped from their homes and shot dead. And Oscar's heart is moved with compassion. He later sees that girl in that little red coat. The whole movie is black and white except for this little girl. Dead on a cart with her body being being shipped away. And at that moment, Schindler says, I'm going to do everything I can to save as many Jews as possible. Oscar Schindler saw the Jews, he saw them. He saw that they were harassed and helpless, and he had compassion. A compassion that moved him to save them Jesus had compassion when he saw the lost sheep in all the towns of Israel Jesus saw them he he had eyes to see people that were being harassed it moved him you know I I often I don't have eyes to see that people are being harassed. You know why? Because I'm often just too busy thinking about myself. And I'm convicted by that. Commentator Charles Price said, compassion comes from seeing people in their true state. Praying for compassion is not likely to be very effective opening our eyes to see people as they really are is the true source of compassion. Brothers and sisters, non-Christians are helpless. Jesus saw this. He saw them in their true state. He saw that they were separated from God and storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Do we see non-Christians in their true state? There are people all around us that don't know Jesus, and the enemy is harassing them day and night. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members— They are being deceived and harassed. And people all around us are hurting. They are anxious and depressed and dejected and lonely and suicidal. They're they're being funneled down a path of destruction, deceived into thinking that the things of this world, the ideas and philosophies and promises of this world will bring them joy. Those things are not working. They live in pain and sorrow and hopelessness. And they're helpless. They can't get out. They can't break their chains. They can't save themselves. When Jesus saw this, his compassion welled up inside of him. Do we have compassion when we see the lost? I often don't. I can see unbelievers as a problem. I can look down on people whose lives are messed up. I can view them as not worth the effort. I can even at times see them as the enemy. Jesus doesn't see them this way. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see you that way? Aren't you grateful for the compassion? That he had when he saw us. See, Jesus saw them as lost sheep. He saw them with compassion. But there is another problem besides the fact that people are harassed and helpless. There is a major problem, and that is we don't have enough people to help them. We see this in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The the problem is not that the harvest is plentiful. We usually want a harvest to be plentiful. And if there isn't anything to harvest, that's a huge problem. But this harvest is the lost sheep that need to be rescued. It's the lost men and women who need to hear the gospel. The problem that Jesus highlights is not the harvest. There's plenty to harvest. It's that we don't have enough people to do the work. We don't have the workers. There aren't enough people to send into the fields. The the crop is going to die. People are going to die. and, And Jesus wants to help them. Jesus actually switches analogies here. He could have stuck with the sheep and the need to rescue them, but he switches to a, a huge field that can't be harvested. This is a major tragedy. You know, bringing in a harvest is supposed to be this time of celebration and joy and, and blessing, but a harvest that's wasted and dies is cause for great sorrow. Sorrow. I just read a story recently about one farmer in California who had to let millions of strawberries rot and die because there was no one to harvest them. I read about another farmer who was forced to plow 300,000 heads of fresh lettuce into the ground because they could not find anyone to harvest. Do you see the massive harvest all around you? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, classmates, waitresses, people at the gym, at the grocery store, at the bank, at Starbucks, your mechanic, your hairdresser, your mailman. There are plenty of lost people. We have not run out of them. There are non-Christians all around us. It is a huge harvest field. And the heart of Christ is to help them. And he wants us to help him with the harvest. We can make a difference in this. You can almost hear Jesus encouraging us, saying, we can do this. We can do this. Last week on Easter Sunday, a man named Romeo got up to give his testimony. Six months ago, he was an atheist, and he was a very active atheist seeking to spread doubt about God wherever he went. His son, Tonio, who had been coming to our church for three months, invited him to our bridge course, kind of like your Christianity Explored. And as Romeo went through that course, the power of the gospel began to tear down his defenses, and the Lord saved him. He testified last week. He said, six months ago, I was an atheist, and now I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the things he said is that he is so amazed by this idea of grace, that he just keeps writing it down, doodling it, writing little acrostics with it, and writing grace. He is he's amazed by grace. Folks, we, we can tell people about this grace, can't we? We can tell people about grace. We just need to join Jesus in the fields. We, we can help them. We can show them how they can be rescued. We, we can take them to the good shepherd. And God wants to use us to rescue people who are lost. Now, I know this is hard. And I know that it is so easy to feel guilty and condemned. We all feel like failures when it comes to this, don't we? Right? We could admit this. We all feel like we, we're failures. But let's not allow the flesh to condemn us and to convince us that we'll never change. Let's not ignore what God is doing this morning. Conviction is a gift from God, and and so is repentance. God is so eager to forgive us and to change us. He doesn't just leave us where we are. He changes us. And he conforms us into the image of Christ. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we are seeing what God wants us to be like. And listen, we're not on our own. We have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working in us to help us to become more like Christ. And in this passage, good news, Jesus tells us what we should do. So we see that in verse 38. Look there. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the first thing we need to do, number one, is pray. Now, please note who we are praying to. Did you see that? We're praying to the Lord of the harvest. That means that he, God, is in charge of the harvest. He's overseeing this whole thing. We're not in charge. That's good news. It's not up to us to do this on our own. God is the key in evangelism. We don't have to put undue pressure on ourselves or think that it's all up to us. It's not. It's up to God to bring these sheep into the fold. Now, we do have a role to play, an important role. We are called to befriend the lost and to share the message of the gospel. We have to get to work in the field. But God does the heavy lifting. He is the one that's behind all that we want to see happen. We, we need God to direct us to people, to give us favor with them, to open their hearts, to convict them of sin, to give them a clear understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross. We need God to regenerate their hearts, to give them the gift of faith and repentance and save them. We can't do any of that, which is why prayer is so critical. It's why Jesus says we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the Father. And and it's why Jesus says we should pray Earnestly. We, we should pray fervently. And this is where spending time with non-Christians and seeing how lost they are will help us. It, it will produce compassion, which in turn will naturally lead to prayer. Mark McCloskey says, if you want to develop a burden for the lost, go out and talk to the lost and find out how lost they really are. See, spending time with those who don't know the Lord will fuel our prayers. It's like praying for an orphan that you're sponsoring in Africa. We prayed periodically for the kids that we sponsored through Covenant Mercies. But when I traveled to Zambia, and saw the girl that we sponsored there, a girl named Prudence, and I saw where she lived, and I saw what her life was like, I felt deep compassion. I also cried all over this poor little girl, this big white American crying all over her. That probably didn't help her. But I just felt so moved by this, and it compelled me to pray In ways that I never have. It's the same with the lost. Spend time with them and you will pray for them and you will pray earnestly. But what what do we pray? Well, pray first that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers or workers into his harvest field, that the one who is sovereign in salvation will send more laborers this passage is emphasizing the need for laborers jesus is in the middle of the harvest and he wants us to join him the problem is not with the harassed sheep that are lost and running away from god or the availability of ripe wheat which is the readiness of people to hear and receive the gospel it's that we don't have enough workers we we don't have enough laborers to get into the fields we don't have enough christians who will do the hard work of reaching the lost. So we must pray. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray for the mission? Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for evangelists and missionaries? Do you pray for the spread of the gospel? So that's number one, we need to pray. And number two, we need to go. So it's not enough to just see the need to to feel compassion or even just to pray. No, we must go. Prayer leads to going. It's not an option for us to keep. The message of the gospel to ourselves we have to reach out to the lost not just someone else not just the bold people not just the extroverted people not just the mature christians or the gifted evangelists or those on the mission field or those on a church plant but us now where do i get this from well i get this from all of chapter 10. Notice that Jesus didn't just set up a series of prayer meetings to pray for the lost. He immediately sends out the disciples to do what he's been doing. Jesus didn't intend to be the only one in the harvest field. He always intended for his followers to do the harvesting. He hinted that at this in chapter 4 when he said, I will make you fishers of men. There is a significant transition taking place here. Jesus has been the one doing all the ministry. He's out in front. He's preaching the gospel and teaching, healing the sick. He's kind of out front. The disciples are bringing up the rear. So the disciples are more like crowd control, right? They're kind of the ones that are carrying the bag. They're like the, the bench players on an NBA basketball team. You know, they're part of the hype crew, you know. So did you ever see the basketball players, the guys on the bench, whenever somebody makes some slam dunk, they all go, whoa, and they kind of like, you know, Jesus is like raising the dead. They're like, oh, whoa, take it out, and holding each other back. That's kind of what the disciples are doing. But in chapter 10, there's a huge transfer. There is a passing of the baton. Jesus was doing all the ministry, and now Jesus sends them out to do the ministry. The disciples are actually an answer to prayer, specifically his prayer to send laborers into the harvest. All right, now we got 12 guys. This is great. Now you might object saying, Oh, wait a second. I mean, these guys are apostles. I'm not an apostle. I mean, some of these guys wrote scripture. They're all stars. I'm not. Well, they're actually not all stars. They're really nothing special. One commentator said that this picture of the disciples is sheer ordinariness. They are the, I love this term, the unspectacular raw material that God delights to work with. Aren't you glad that God delights to work with unspectacular raw material? And if you're still not convinced, in Luke chapter 10, after sending out the 12, Jesus then sends out the 72. If the disciples were the bench warmers, these guys are in the developmental league. They're the D league guys, they're just regular old followers of Christ. We don't even know their names. That's because they're us. It's because all followers of Christ are called to help others become followers of Christ. But it ain't going to be that easy. In our bridge course, uh, we do a bridge course and then a bridge study, a follow-up. And I remember years ago, there was a guy named Bill. He's kind of a blue-collar guy. And at the end of this bridge study, I was asking him about church. I said, Bill, are you going to be able to come to church? And he goes, well, it ain't going to be that easy. And I said, Bill, why, why not? He goes, well, spring and all. <laughs> and I think he meant just springs, you know, there's, I don't know, a lot of yard work. He's got a mulch and stuff. But the phrase, it ain't going to be that easy, is helpful. When it comes to evangelism, it ain't going to be that easy. And as we see, and that's exactly what we see in chapter 10. As we get into chapter 10, there is a gathering storm. The opposition is intense and unrelenting. Jesus will experience trials and resistance and violence until the end, until they finally get him, have their way with him. This is part of his calling and his mission, and it's true for us as well. Like Jesus, we are going to be opposed in our mission to reach the lost. And it's getting worse. The message of the gospel that we are all sinners, deserving hell, and can only be saved through the death of Christ is not a popular message. In fact, everything that we now believe is offensive. Right? And we've lost Whatever popularity we at one time had, it's gone. We are increasingly seen as hateful, unethical, oppressive, and the opposition is growing, which should not surprise us. Jesus prepared us for this. Let's, let me just skim through some verses here in chapter 10 so you can see this. So Jesus selects the 12 apostles, and then in verse 5, he sends them out. So he's sending them out two by two. Verse 7, he says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. So right there, that's it. Proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. That's their mission. Down in verse 14, he says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words. Wait, we're going to go out and some people are not going to receive us? They're not even going to listen? What's happening here? Then Jesus says, look at verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves now this has to be the worst motivational speech in the history of motivational speeches i mean these guys are probably already nervous jesus has been doing all this ministry he's the one casting out demons they're just you know carrying the bags and monitoring the crowds now they're going, they got to be nervous, like, oh, I can't believe it. I didn't know we were going to do this. Did you know we were going to do this? And Jesus kind of gathers them together and says, okay, everybody get in here. You know, put your hands in here. Okay, okay, on the count of three. Ready? Sheep among wolves. Ready? One, two, three. Sheep among wolves. All right, let's go. Sheep among wolves. Sheep. She, wait, what? Sheep among wolves. They're dead. Jesus is basically saying, you're dead meat. Sheep have no chance against wolves. I researched this one time. I think sheep have like 16 teeth. Wolves have like 32 teeth. They run like three times. Like this is not a, this is not encouraging. Are you guys ready for the mission? You're dead meat. I mean, this is, this is what he says. And then look, verse 17, beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts And flog you in their synagogues? You'll be dragged before governors and kings? Then verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. What? That's crazy. And the father, his child, a father... It's going to give his child over to death. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And listen, verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Oh, you want to be part of the mission? Everyone will hate you. I mean, this is unbelievable. Then verse 23, when they persecute you from one town, flee to the other. Okay, now you're going to be a fugitive. Verse 25, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those? You're going to be maligned. They'll, They'll call you Satan. Verse 26, so have no fear of them. What? Have no fear? You've put as much fear into me as humanly possible. Why is he saying this? Well, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in heaven. And then verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So this is not an option. This is not optional. And we're not waiting for them. We have to speak up to share this message. And then it continues, verse 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace to this earth? I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You have to put the mission above your family. You have to take up your cross and even be willing to die. Yikes. Yikes. I mean, when I became a Christian, I did not know I was signing up for this. It kind of feels like you signed up for the Cub Scouts and you end up on Paris Island for the Marine Corps boot camp. When you became a Christian, you might not have realized it. But you signed up for a mission to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. And as we seek to carry out that mission, we will meet with opposition. Like Jesus, we'll be opposed. But listen, this doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. In fact, it means we're doing something right. Second Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And church, we have to be prepared for this. If we're going to be faithful stewards of the gospel message, if we're going to be a church that reaches into the darkness, we have to be able to absorb the blows of the opposition. Like boxers, we have to be able to take some hits. I absolutely love the Rocky movies. I've watched almost all of them. I don't think it's possible to watch all of them. But spoiler alert, all of the Rocky movies are about him basically taking a hit, getting beat up, and at the end he kind of wins. Okay, sorry to spoil all the movies for you. But there's one line that I love. I think it's in the movie called Balboa. He says to his son, it ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And that's very true. Brothers and sisters, we have to be able to take a hit and keep moving forward with the message of the gospel. I love this quote by Spurgeon. He says, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us not count it hard, but let us be willing to bear scorn and contempt for him. Let us say to ourselves, then did they spit in his face. What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame since it comes upon me for his dear sake. See that wretch is about to spit in Christ's face? Put your cheek forward, that you may catch that spittle upon your face, that it fall not upon him again. For as he was put to such terrible shame, everyone who has been redeemed with the precious blood ought to count it an honor to be a partaker of the shame, if by any means we may screen him from being further despised. And rejected of men there's a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's list when Schindler must flee the country after saving over a thousand Jews he had risked his life time and time and time again he gave the equivalent of more than a hundred million dollars of his own money To rescue as many Jewish men, women, and children as he could. And at the end of the movie, he's in a conversation with his friend, Ithak Stern. And he says, I could have gotten more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I just, I could have got more. And Stern says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are here alive because of you. Look at them. Schindler says, if I'd made more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. If I had just, and Stern says, there will be generations because of what you did. Schindler says, I didn't do enough. He says, you did so much. Oscar says, this car, Goeth would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people, ten more. Then he removes the, the Nazi pin from his lapel. He says, this pin, two people. This is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for it. At least one, one more person, a person stern for this. And he breaks down sobbing. And he says, I could have gotten one more person, and I didn't, and I didn't. Oscar Schindler saw the Jewish people in their desperate plight. He sacrificed so much to save so many. He was like Christ in this. But he was right. He didn't give everything. Jesus did. Jesus gave everything. When Jesus saw us in our lost condition, as we were barreling toward hell, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, careening toward an eternity of suffering, he had compassion on us. It was gut-wrenching for him. So He left his throne above. He became one of us. He became the son of man. He clothed himself in flesh so that his flesh could be pierced, so that his body could take our curse and absorb our punishment. He gave everything, even his life, to save us from hell. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. To bring the light of the gospel into a dark world yes it can be dangerous yes it is scary but jesus has given us the power of the holy spirit to give us boldness to overcome our fears so that we can reach the lost with the greatest news in the world the gospel of jesus christ let's pray Lord, thank you that when you saw us, you had compassion. Thank you that you didn't despise us. You didn't give us what we deserved. You came down to rescue us. save us from our sins how can we ever thank you for what you have done to rescue us and Lord we also thank you for the amazing privilege to be able to rescue others to go to work with you in that great harvest field Lord my prayer is that you would send these workers into the field, that you would use us, use this church to reach many with the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.